Welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood. I'm Matt Cashin. This is a long time coming. It's been too long since we've had an actual science guest on. I'm very excited. It's true. I feel very relaxed and happy about this episode. We don't have to do much heavy lifting. We on don't this. have to. Do, yeah, we we haven't had to do the research on this one. My the Jim Jeffrey show is almost over, so there's less scheduling conflicts. Mm-hmm. It's just, a pleasant 76 degree Saturday afternoon here ow. in Southern California, and we, and we have a pro on the show. Let's just get right into it. Shall yes. we? Dana Stuff, uh, PhD on squids, now a science writer, uh, and currently, and the writer, the publisher, the creator of the brand new book, Squid Empire. The Rise and Fall of the Cephalopods. How's it going, Dana? It's great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really glad we hooked this up. Um, friend of the show, Kathleen Ritterbush, introduced us, and... You don't normally live in LA, but she was like, you're going to be coming to town. And she connected us. It was perfect. Yeah, Kathleen was actually one of my main sources for the book. Her paleontological research is awesome. featured heavily. Awesome. Very cool. So you're on a little squid tour right now. That's exactly is that right. Accurate? I am on squid tour. What is the thing that you were speaking at uh, yesterday you mentioned? Um, I, it's a conference called the Western Society of Naturalists. Oh, cool. Uh, so it's a big bunch of natural history dorks that get together. And even though the title is natural history they're mostly all marine biologists see i used to like it but it's got so like instagrammy recently everyone's just you know you know it's all about the scene it's not like the scene yeah people used to just go there and talk fossils and everything be really into this stuff but now everyone's just posing for their picture and leaving and you know what so what is the uh in the downtime at one of these conventions what's what sort of uh are you guys still talking shop or do you guys cut loose? What's the party scene like? That is an interesting question. Uh, I went to bed early last night, okay. so I'm not sure if I can, the right person to answer. To what, what marine biologists and other natural Yeah, so uh, marine biologists do mostly like to drink beer okay. um, and then also other alcoholic beverages. And, um, and then like just talk in much more excited voices about flatworms and jellyfish and i heard some there's like some marine biologists later like after dark will glow <laughs> if they've been taking in a little bit too much of the green fluorescent protein <laughs> i can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> Well, it seems like they should be drinking before the conference. That would make things li- livelier, right? Like, is, are they worried that they're going to say the? Can you say the wrong thing when you're talking about marine biology? Can you? Are there secrets the public can't know? I think that that it's more the other way around. Like, the more marine biology secrets that get out there, the happier the marine biologists Better. are. Okay. Yeah, nice. they're like, oh, everybody likes to hear about penis fencing flatworms or whatever it is so like let's as get a the news non-marine there. biologist i can confirm that that is something i would like to hear about well, i can tell you all about it if you'd like we like let's, we actually just spent a couple episodes talking about duck penises so i think we could move penis in another direction related no no i'm saying i'm saying that's right up our alley like oh, anything well, animal yeah. penis related is instantly like very on brand for well, our show. well there's a a natural history illustrator so science illustrator who is at the conference and this is what brought it to mind she has all of these beautiful prints that she's made of uh, jellyfish, glowing bioluminescent things, various um, various marine animals. And then she has one of fencing flatworms. Uh, she had left the word penis off deliberately, uh. so it would be a little bit of an in-joke. Because if you look at the drawing, it's just these two very beautiful squiggly worms rearing back with what looks like sort of maybe arms coming out, like they're okay. fencing, but they're not arms. Because flatworms are hermaphrodites, so they all have penises. 
um, and they don't have a receptacle. The idea is just to stab your partner with, if you're a flatworm, with your penis and inseminate them just kind of by sticking sperm into the skin. Is this where the fencing part of it comes this in? Is the fencing part comes in because if you can play the male and inseminate your partner, you're kind of better off because you don't get stabbed and you don't have to raise the babies. Oh, so it's, it's so sort of a competition for resources. Yeah, exactly. Like who gets to inseminate the other one and then can you like take off before you get inseminated right because couldn't couldn't one of those interactions end with both of them getting stabbed it could and yes absolutely like, ah, we're yeah, yeah. Both I mean and then like that's great because more flatworm babies but but as an individual as an individual it's, it's more advantageous it's right. to uh, so it really <laughs> is like an actual what like watching an actual fencing match in that they are sort of dodging and exactly, weaving and parrying exactly. and yeah, yeah they're sort of like on guard detent. are they yeah. aware I mean I guess they aren't aware of anything probably but like do they suddenly react when they've been in, you know I mean on some level are they aware they have now been inseminated and like oh fuck I lost or not <laughs> you do they have act differently to wonder yeah. I, I can't actually answer that but do they, they don't like recoil or something once they've gotten inseminated or stabbed I don't know yeah. That's a really they good question. They might just keep on stabbing. They get pissed they, off and like chuck their equipment yeah. in the corner. I think that might be the question for your PhD thesis when you're ready to go When back I'm to ready. <laughs> yeah. You knew that I was right. I was just, yeah. like, just right on the verge. The yeah. So close. <laughs> so, All it took is that one little nudge. So your PhD was on squids. It was what, on squids, yes. Also it? sex. Uh, okay. Squid sex and babies. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so I studied the, the long name is the reproduction and early life history of the Humboldt squid Decidicus gigas. And uh, Humboldt squid are pretty big. They're not the giant squid, but they get about the biggest ones are about as big as me. So like it's pretty big for a squid. Big, yeah, that's uh, a pretty sizable squid. Small yeah. for a human, but you know, yeah, um, I'd be scared. I'd, I'd be scared of that in the water if I was swimming. I'd still say that's on the larger side of squids. It's it's mm-hmm. the it's, larger side. Yes, they're called jumbo squid. Right. Sort of to differentiate just a little bit of separation. And are they indigenous to the waters uh, off the Humboldt County shore? Or that is the obvious question, isn't it? They are actually named after the Humboldt Current off South oh. America because that's their native home. Is actually South America, Central America, and Mexico. The irony is that while I was in graduate school, they started showing up as far north as Humboldt County, California, oh, okay. and further. Uh, so there was this invasion of Humboldt squid you may have seen in the news. People got kind of excited about it. Um, <laughs> I think you overestimated yeah, yeah. marine biologists. <laughs> this is why like, marine biologists want to get this stuff yeah, out. Yeah, How yeah. could you not hear about the Humboldt squid invasion? You know, read it in the news. Oh, yeah, you probably read general non-squid news. <laughs> so. How is that not above the fold of the New York Times? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, so that happened. Um, that was in until, the early two thousand. Until a squid steals a Grammy that was meant for Beyonce. That's it's when it's going to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so they, um, uh, th- my whole lab, my advisor and the other graduate students in Texas were all kind of devoted to figuring out this invasion, figuring out where they're coming from. And, and my research was a lot around we see adults coming further north into colder waters and are they having babies up here? Or are they going back south to the warm tropics to reproduce? Mm-hmm. And so to do, figure that out, I had to study both the babies, like, okay, what temperatures do baby squid like? What do they eat? What do they need? And also, um, I was studying the adults and taking some samples to figure out genetically, are these guys related to those guys? Are they a whole separate breeding population? So were you doing experiments on the squids in captivity, or were you finding samples in the wild, or was it some of both? It was a bit of both. So for the adults, the big ones, um, we 
do not yet have any ability to keep them in captivity for very long. So that was all samples from the wild. So going fishing for big squid, taking little tissue samples. And then what I was studying in the lab in captivity were the babies, which are fortunately teeny tiny. So you can put them in a Petri dish. They're like grain of rice size. Like sea monkeys. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's, what's sea monkeys the... that just happen to grow to the size of a human? Yeah, right. Yeah. So better than sea monkeys. Yeah. Do, the, do, the, do the adults <laughs> not to get too down, or do they just die in captivity, or what, what? Yeah, the problem is that they are open ocean animals, so they need, they swim a lot, and so they just start off by needing a lot of space, mm-hmm. and then on top of that, they have really delicate skin. So if they do bump in, if they you know, rub against the walls of their enclosure, they don't have any walls in the wild, so they don't really have any. Uh, way of dealing with that and they just end up getting their skin gets abraded they get infected so in the in the modern world do they have issues with uh things like boats and trawlers and that kind of well they are fished so the humboldt squid is actually a huge fishery off south america central america and mexico like just variability depending on where they show up but um it's the biggest squid fishery in the world in terms of tonnage of squid flesh being hauled out of the ocean uh-huh. and cooked up or, or eaten raw, however you like it. Um, is, so, is there a big enough population that that's okay? It or? is. They oh, seem okay. to be doing really oh, well, actually. Because you don't care. You, you don't, you're not so attached to them that you hate the idea of them being eaten or something. Uh, on a personal level, I do a little bit. I'm yeah. a vegetarian. I don't oh, okay. eat squid. But as fisheries go, as like hauling protein out of the ocean goes, like they're definitely... Yeah, they're not struggling the way a lot of other species they're are. They're towards the more ethical sca- end I would, of the I scale. would say, yeah, like overall, conservation-wise. So to study the little babies, um, I actually did a bunch of in vitro fertilization. So we would capture the adults, but because we couldn't keep them and breed them in the lab, I would just take their gonads. So I'd take the eggs out of the females and the sperm out of the males because they do have separate sexes. And then um, you know mix them in Petri dishes with this jelly that we figured out had to be added. And it was sort of like a... Um, yeah, I was doing in vitro reproduction. Instead. How many how many viable uh, squid embryos do you get out of one of those? Uh, that's a good question. How was that? It was probably like probably a few dozen. Yeah. I would end up with yeah, and then we'd get to watch and they just look like little eggs, and then after a few days they start to sort of have color in them and little ink sacs, and you can Aww. see their little bodies pulsing and they have eyes, and so very very adorable. And then at the end of the experiment, do you let them back into the? Of Of course. Of course that's what we do. Yeah, what else could you possibly do with them? Yeah. And this is in, you were telling me, so you got your PhD at Stanford, but that meant spending most of your time in Monterey. That's right. Yeah. That's where this was happening? Yeah. So the, well, Monterey and Mexico. So we were doing, um, on the, the, these squid are so unpredictable. So sometimes we would catch them in Monterey Mm -hmm. or nearby waters, and then we would be able to do the in vitro and we'd be able to do all this tissue sampling and stuff. Um, But we'd also go to Mexico fairly often where they're, very reliable to catch them. Uh, well, as reliable as anything with squid is. Of course, yeah. there's always times when you can't. But um, we go to Baja. Santa Rosalia is the center of squid fishing in Baja. And then uh, Guaymas on the Sonoran coast. And we went to both of those places with the whole lab. And we would go out on boats in the cool. Sea of Cortez and fish squid. What, any, did you see any other crazy things we were expecting to yes. see? Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. On my very first cruise as a graduate student, um, cruise sounds fancy, but research cruises are like way less fancy than yeah. what most people think of. They're yeah. like, you're on a boat and you're staying up 24 hours to do all the science you possibly can. In the and the comedian on board is like an open micer <laughs> and the buffet is really basic. <laughs> yeah, they just uh, just like nothing on the buffet. But Drinks are overpriced, yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, there was ice cream actually on that cruise, so I was... It was fan. I know. Research dollars going to good use. 
<laughs> yes, keeping uh, keeping your scientists awake all night. And on this particular cruise, I was doing in vitro fertilization. We were fishing for adult squid, the general routine. But there were also a group of people doing uh, blue water diving, which is kind of scuba diving that's done from a boat way out over nothing. Mm -hmm. So the water's way too deep to see the bottom. You're way too far offshore to see anything onshore. And so all you can see are these tethers. The blue water divers tether themselves to each other and back to the boat with hooks and lines. And they just have a bunch of jars and they're collecting gelatinous weirdness around them, whether it's jellyfish or um, little baby fish or amphipods or whatever it is. And this group of divers saw a huge like, car-sized gelatinous blob and went closer to it and sampled it, and it turned out to be an egg mass of Humboldt squid. And it had little, like it was studded like, with little stars of little tiny baby squid. And it was the first time anyone had seen this in the wild. All of the babies that we knew were from doing this in vitro stuff in the lab before. Oh, wow. So that's how they, that's what happens. So, one, so in the wild, when a female squid is fertilized or impregnated or whatever then it just releases this huge egg sac that's what we think yeah i mean it, we, we still haven't seen them actually do it but that's the surmise is that the um the female squid which store sperm so they don't they can mate and collect kind of collect the sperm and hang on to it for a while until they're ready to release one of these things and then they, so they mix it themselves so they can collect the sperm of multiple males mm-hmm, that's right and we, nobody knows how they decide, if they even decide, or if it's just, like, random which one gets used. It's totally open. Is there, do, the, do their sperm act at all like human sperm in terms of, like, are, are they competing? Are they, like, pretty active individual things that are competing with each other? To they get to the- are, yeah. we think. Uh, the squid package up their sperm into these little things called spermatophores that each ejaculate independently. Mm-hmm. And so the males have these packages that they kind of pass over with an arm and then the packages like ejaculate and glue themselves onto the female squid and then she has all these like decorated decorative dangling packages of sperm i'm just picturing like those it's fake wild. Uh, those fake uh, peanut brittle cans <laughs> <laughs> yes are you too young for that you know, no, no, where they opened? like you open yeah, them yeah, and yeah, they yeah. pop out yeah pass over the canister and then yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. only in this case the female squid is expecting it we, right we right. can assume <laughs> But that one car-sized gelatinous blob wasn't one female. It was. It was all oh. from one female, which is mind-blowing. But the way um, the way that we know that is partly because all the eggs in it were exactly the same stage of development. So they must have all been released at the same time. Okay. And also because we did an estimate of how many eggs there were in the whole thing. And it was a, probably about half a million, um, which is only a fraction of the number of eggs that a female can have in her ovaries. Which is millions and millions. Wow. So it's actually completely plausible. The size of it is pretty bizarre. Yeah. And that is because it expands after she lays it. So when she creates this gelatinous blob, she just kind of, it's probably like squid arm size, like Uh a pillow or something. Mm -hmm. And it's got this concentrated jelly in it. And as soon as she lets go, it absorbs water, surrounding water and goes. So it's not like the growth of the embryos that's making it grow. It's just the water taking it. Yeah. It just, it's probably a chemical thing. And then if you swam up next to it, you could see through it, but not well, or the video. So they, fortunately they had a video camera with Mm -hmm. them. So I've seen the video and, uh, and yeah, you could see right through it. It's almost completely transparent. Um, they were even like just putting their arms into it to scoop up some squid babies, 
which um, I was not in the water, which was a great tragedy, but they brought me squid babies on the boat, which was a great triumph. So this is like the high you guys moment. Well that night. Did yeah, you, did you go diving with them sometimes as well? No, I never went blue water diving. Uh, by the way, our, our listeners, because this is an audio-only show, you did, they did miss a fantastic uh, eggs expanding in the water <laughs> mime that you just did. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't really no, put that into words. It was but, phenomenal. It was a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems like the kind of thing that people... I feel like your job is one that uh, when you ask kids what they want to be, I feel like that ranks pretty high up there, don't you? I often hear marine biologists. Yeah, yeah. 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 Many, many grown-ups will come to me and say, oh, I wanted to be a marine right. biologist when I was a kid. I seems... just didn't want to do science for many years <laughs> yeah that's the thing is, and i can is sympathize it, with that yeah. <laughs> is it the fact that there aren't that many jobs or that there's so much unglamorous uh something because that that part seems like the the thing that sells you the brochure absolutely like, that's sea, top notch blue water diving and you yeah. come across it yeah yeah but is that the exception rather than the the rule it is it is the that. exception rather than the rule yeah and certainly like being at this conference this weekend there yeah, this morning um there was a, a marine biologist who gave it a beautiful talk about uh, deep sea fit or open ocean fish and how they can camouflage themselves in the middle of the open ocean. And, you know, she had one slide of herself and another buddy in the middle of the open ocean, just like hanging on to a piling, watching these schools of fish go by. And she's like, this is one day out of my life. And mostly, you know, mostly she's probably behind a computer writing grants right, right. and crunching numbers. And yeah, but, it's like being an astronaut. Yeah. Like you may never go to space. Pro- the odds are you will never go to space. Yeah. You could still have the title astronaut, but there would be a lot of things involved. in the. And even art. if you do it sort of uh, a few weeks after a decade of learning. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of work to go into it. It's a lot sure. of arithmetic. Yeah. A lot. a lot of former test and fighter pilot work probably. Actually, mm-hmm. But, um, uh, so I was going to ask how you got into cephalopods in the first place. Ah, like started that goes way back. I was 10 years old and I went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium with my parents and they had a giant Pacific octopus on display and I, it was love at first sight. I just sat down and I stared at the octopus for two hours. <laughs> my mother tried to drag me. She's like, there's other exhibits here. And no, this is the only exhibit. <laughs> Do you think it was looking at you? Yes. Do oh, they yeah. actually? They do. They oh. do. I think that was what captured me. Is I was like, here's this is an alien. Like this is the closest we have to alien intelligence on our planet. It's totally squishy. It's completely different, but it still it looks back at you. And we've had stories on the show in the past about how remarkably smart that animal is. Yes. Yes. Like they've op- they opened jars yeah. and yeah, the and they grants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Escape from labs and all sorts. Absolutely. Yeah. And they, um, I had a couple of pet octopuses after this experience. So we came home from, from Monterey to, to LA where I live. And I told my parents, I want to keep a pet octopus. And you said, that's nice. All right. Very good. <laughs> Go to bed. Um, and I kept saying this for long enough that my father finally helped me set up a saltwater aquarium. And we got a pet octopus um, from the Van Nuys fish store, where, um, which was the closest one to our house. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're... And so it was a small octopus. It was much smaller than this giant Pacific octopus at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. But it was still, uh, it had a, completely had a personality. It would realize that we were coming in to feed it. And it would come out from its den. And I would put the this cube of frozen food down. And we would play tug of war for a little while. It was oh, a cool. really cool pet. <laughs> How big did that get? Uh, it never got much bigger. I mean, smaller than my hand, probably. You know, its body was maybe just a couple of inches. Mm-hmm. It, it was a small species. Okay. So are squids in the same realm of intelligence as octopus or? It's a really good question. It's really hard to 
study squid intelligence, because of what we were talking about, they're really hard to keep in the lab. So an octopus, in a way, an octopus is more like a human because it has a den. It has a home that it comes back to. And it kind of crawls around, walks around on the ground. So it can, you can give it a maze. You can give it a jar to open. You can give it all kinds of intelligence puzzles that make sense to humans. But a squid is such a swimmer that you can't, you can't keep it in a small space where you can give it a puzzle to solve or a maze to go through. So I think we just haven't gotten to the point where we can test squid intelligence. Okay. So that's across. I thought maybe you were saying that one species of squid is, is particularly fragile and not good mm. for keep. All squid can't really be kept. In. Pretty much. The only ones that are easier to keep in captivity are ones that are that don't fit that typical squid mold so there are pygmy squid that just uh that have little glue glands and they just glue themselves onto seaweed and sit there so that's a lot easier to keep in the lab because you just need a small tank with some seaweed and um and then there are some other ones that that do swim but they mostly they have these fins uh they're called reef squid and they'll mostly stay in one place they'll kind of be finning like a like a helicopter more than an airplane okay and uh, and those can be kept but the, most of them are just really hard. Ah. Really hard. So you did your PhD, and then you've since moved more And then more I totally into, bailed on academia. Yeah, you yeah. moved into the world of popular science, yeah. science writing. Yeah, uh, because I realized by the time I was about halfway through my PhD that I really loved science, and I loved telling people about science. Um, even if they didn't ask me, I would just right. volunteer. Like, do you, have you heard about penis fencing and flatworms? Like, how can you just not lead with that? Yes, I've heard. <laughs> but um, but I got really tired of doing the science myself. Um, the sort of the like setup, the experimental design, and the setup, and then it didn't work, and then you have to go back and iterate and do another one. And and um, yeah, I just got really tired of that. So, so I did enough of it to get my PhD, and then I decided. Yeah, I that's just, the, like you're a. You ha- you did put the work in. Yeah. Like, you did your time. Yes. You paid your dues. <laughs> now I will just tell people about the science that other people do. Yeah. And I still get to keep learning things, which is my favorite part. That's like a much better version of what we're doing. Both of us having backgrounds <laughs> in something science even that we've abandoned. But now like, well, we do this podcast so our parents can still think that uh, maybe that college wasn't wasted. Or is something. that why you do the podcast for I, your parents? I don't, know. I don't <laughs> think my parents know what a podcast is. That was definitely yeah. not on the list of reasons for me. <laughs> I think at some point it was like a little bit of guilt. I mean, it was your idea in the first place, Matt, but, um, but I was like, oh yeah, then I'll feel like a little bit less guilty about wasting an education. So I don't know. And it's fun. Whatever. We get to talk to interesting people who are smarter than us. Yeah. And I feel like a science education is never wasted because it's always, it's always going to be there that you had that exposure and yeah, way yeah. of thinking and sometimes yeah, way of knowing to about a fault. the world. <laughs> I think you can't turn off that yes. annoying people around you. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So let's get on to the, so you then started putting together this book. That's right. Yeah. So the book, Squid Empire, The Rise and Fall mm-hmm. of the Cephalopods, came about because I had a friend while I was in grad school who was a shark guy and he was writing a shark book like you do when you're a shark guy. Yeah. And, uh, and he actually, like his publisher was temporarily, was I was sort of interested in doing a squid book and we talked a little bit and it never really happened. But that kind of planted the seed of I could write a squid book. And it, I had even gotten to the point of thinking if I were to write a squid book, what would it be about? And I thought it's got to be about this deep time evolutionary history because it's so crazy. Like we have calamari today and they their lineage goes back in time to way before the dinosaurs. And it just started to fascinate me when I thought about it. And so it took a couple of years, but I ended up um, having an agent later on for for another project who was interested in trying to pitch this book 
and uh, and she and I worked on the proposal together, and then um, and we found a publisher, and then so I got to write the. Book. So let's start with that because that's you. We almost skipped over what is a ridiculous statement. So this cheap breadcrumb covered food, <laughs> yes, <laughs> can trace its lineage pretty simply back to well beyond well well beyond recorded yeah, history like, like they are the ancestral royalty of the seas they are the original sea monsters yeah so i mean i mean dinosaur people like dinosaurs and dinosaurs are cool but they only go back about 250 million years encephalopods which is the squid and octopus group go back 500 million years so like twice that long and they were the big tentacled monsters in the ocean and there weren't even any fish like there were no marine reptiles no ichthyosaurs there were no fish no sharks like certainly no seabirds or anything and they were it for millions and millions of years so so when people quite often talk about crocodiles or alligators as being like this sort of prehistoric relic and they're like yeah it's dinosaurs that are walking the earth well fuck you crocodile because (laughs) yeah more or less (laughs) shitty little calamari And your local Mediterranean restaurant predates them by 250 million years. They do. I like to think of it that way. I mean, technically, it wasn't squid themselves, but uh, but they're distant tentacled ancestors. Uh, The biggest difference between these prehistoric monarchs of the sea and squid is that the ancient ones had shells on the outside of them. So they were like a combination of a squid and a snail. And were were those big or... No. Many of them were very big. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they got the big innovation of the squid ancestors was that they got a buoyant shell. They evolved the ability to pump out water from their shell and let gas diffuse in. So once they had a buoyant shell, they could kind of get as big as they wanted to because the shell is heavy, but the gas is light. And so no matter how big the shell gets, it always offsets its own weight. But they could they could find a way to get without having to be near the surface. They could right. get a gas into it. Or? Yes, it's super weird and something that I didn't even understand until I started researching this book. Even though I had a PhD in squid biology, the gas itself is dissolved in their blood. Just like when we breathe air, we end up with dissolved gases in our blood. When fish or squid or anything breathe water, they have dissolved. There's dissolved oxygen in the water that then becomes dissolved in their blood. And so what the what the cephalopods with external shells do is they make their blood salty, which pulls the liquid out of the shell through osmosis. And then the vacuum in the shell pulls dissolved gases out of their blood to fill in the space. And they're, they're on, I mean, obviously weird. they're not like aware, aware of it, but on some level, like they, they want to get to a different depth. So they're changing. There's some happening. control <laughs> yeah, over yeah. the saltiness of the blood. And I don't think anybody knows Jesus. how that control happens. And how, what's the biggest as far as you can tell, how big do these shells get? So the biggest fossil one that I know of is about six meters long. Uh, so damn big. Yeah, that is very that's way bigger than I thought you were going to say. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's what like a bus length, roughly. Like yeah, eight, could, hang on, wait a second. Eighteen, nineteen feet, maybe almost twenty feet, right? Yeah, it's about three yeah. and a half. Yeah. 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 So yeah, 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 getting on 20 foot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, and of course, we do, that's just the shell. We don't know. We presume that they had tentacles because all of the modern ones have tentacles. So maybe they had really long tentacles and then they were even bigger. Um, and then they're Oh, also, because the tentacles wouldn't have been fossilized. They would have. Exactly. It's really, really hard to find fossil tentacles. So when you're studying the fossils, because that's partly what your book's about, when you're studying the fossils of these squid, you're, it's mostly the fossils of the shells uh, that these pre- 
these prehistoric shelled squids yeah. have. Yeah, it's like uh, it's it's almost exclusively shells. There are certain places and times where you can find imprints of arms and suction cups, but mostly it's just shells. But you're sure it couldn't be some other creature with a shell? It would, <laughs> it's a really good question. The shells are, uh, uh, several pods are identified by a couple of different things. One is these chambers with the gas in them because there's no other snail or seashell or anything that has that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the other one is that there's often um, markings where a siphon would have come out. And a siphon is like the funnel that a squid uses to move itself. It blows water out of the siphon and it that pushes the squid the other direction. Oh. So this buoyancy, this shell buoyancy thing, is that something we can see in any modern... Inc- yes. There are still a few. Of course, squid themselves don't have it. Um, octopuses don't have it. But there's a, something called the nautilus, the pearly nautilus or chambered nautilus, that still has an external shell. And that's the the closest analogy we have for the extinct ones. And so, it, it does use that gas thing too. Exactly, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how it's been. We only assume that the ancient ones do it the way nautiluses right, right. do it. So people have studied these modern nautilus. Mm-hmm. And-, and then there also are uh, cuttlefish, which are superficially very similar to squid. They look very much like squid on the outside. But on the inside, they do have a shell, like a hard shell, that isn't, uh, it isn't chambered quite the way a nautilus or an ancient cephalopod is, but it does have little bits of gas inside it. So it's sort of a, a relic or a residue. It's a shell it. inside. Inside its body. I didn't know that. It's called a cuddle bone. Um, and sometimes they're sold at pet stores so that you can give calcium supplements to your birds. Oh, the bones themselves. The bones. Oh, not okay. the cuttlefish. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think I've bones. seen that. Cuttle bones. Yeah. yeah. I've never, never heard of that. No. They're white oval things. And then birds peck at them and get the calcium. So back when there were giant cephalopods in the ocean... What sh- or wh- why why are there few are there fewer giant things in the ocean in general these days than ever before? Giant marine life in, like is that a statement no? You can, I no. don't think so. Okay. There's just it's just different. There yeah. have been kind of turnovers of which groups of animals are giant. Uh-huh. Uh, so the first ocean giants were cephalopods, uh, were these big chambered crazy monsters, um, and then fish evolved and got jaws and got big and that ever since then that's been driving the evolution of squid and their ancestors because fish like to eat squid and so they've had to get faster they've had to get smaller that's why they eventually lost the awkward shell um and then fish were giants there there were not all fish but there were gigantic fish um really big sharks and then you have marine reptiles evolving around the same time as the dinosaurs and then you have gigantic ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs and things and then in more recent times you have the marine mammals so you get your giant whales Mm. okay so is is part of the reason that there were these cephalopods throughout time and they never had a major extinction event is that because the sea is more stable of an environment than the atmosphere is well i will have to jump in there they did actually have several major extinction events (laughs) no no need to apologize they um the biggest one was actually way so the famous extinction that everybody knows about is the dinosaurs right asteroid hits the planet all the dinosaurs are gone except for the birds um and that was also a major extinction for cephalopods so that was when most of the shelled cephalopods went kaput. So a lot of these ones with beautiful coils and interesting shapes and things, they're just gone right at the exact same time. Um, What would the actual mechanism that caused that have been, do you think? You could go to grad school for that (laughs) also. Uh, Many people are trying to figure that one out. One of the thoughts is that the asteroid impact 
uh, caused a bunch of acid rain, which then acidified the surface of the ocean, which then damaged plankton and the ba- it, it comes back to the babies again, the babies of these cephalopods that were eating the plankton and living in the plankton, and it sort of killed them. And the ones that survived, like squid and nautiluses, may have done so by uh, hiding out in the deep sea, which wouldn't have been as acidified, okay. or having more resilient babies in some way. It's still a bit of a question mark. Oh, okay. Sorry, I keep gesturing. I no, just no, no, can't. no. No, gesture away. She made a question mark in the air. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that was a big extinction event for them that they kind of, a, a lot of the really gorgeous ones are gone and then the ones that pulled through, pulled through. But even before that and even before the dinosaurs, um, there was another really big extinction event called the Great Dying. Mm-hmm. Like scientists actually call it the Great Dying. Um, and 96% of everything marine went extinct. And that included oh. a whole lot of stuff. Like, like they almost completely bit it then. But a few managed to pull through and then diversify again. Right. And that, that and there's no theory for what? Uh, that. that is probably volcanoes. Uh, oh. There are, there's evidence that there were just like Earth just kind of opened up its guts. And there was this massive planetary indigestion and everything and that happened in what is now siberia and there's a huge like millions of um square miles i guess in siberia that's paved with lava and basalt and all of the other like relics i've never heard of this what's that what's that area called siberian traps the siberian traps um, which is great i mean it it sounds like it's trapping but it's actually like the word trap comes from a word in another language that I don't remember that Doesn't means the shape of the structures, like oh, okay. the geologic shape of the structures. So it's boring. But. Siberian traps. Yeah. Never knew about that. Yeah. Um, so this wasn't your first book, correct? It was. It was. It was my first book. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. As I was looking on Amazon, I thought there was another... Uh, Yes, I, I contributed to an octopus anthology. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I don't think of that as my book. I just, yeah. But, but yes, We've all I, contributed to octopus <laughs> anthologies, though. I mean, do, don't we all yeah. do that? That's just like... I did one this morning. Yeah, oh, there nice. You go. Yeah. I'm going to thank you for that. So what are some um, misconceptions people have about squids? Um, that, that they're scary. I mean, you mentioned that you didn't want to get in the water with Humboldt squid, which is understandable, but... Uh, even the very biggest squid eat small things mm-hmm. like we you know, like a great white shark um like at least you can understand they eat seals people are kind of the same size and shape as seals particularly so people on surfboards silhouetted from above exactly you understand where the great white shark is coming from it's an it's a mistake it's an honest mistake <laughs> it's an honest mistake yeah, yeah. It is, uh, yeah but um but squid eat even big squid eat fish like the size of your hand so we don't look like food to any squid. It doesn't mean that they're, I mean, they're still wild animals and mm-hmm. they could still hurt you. You know, like your cat can scratch you. Um, and they're, they're curious, which is a little bit unnerving if you're underwater with them and they're Have you spent much time? You. I have never spent a lot of time with big ones. I've gone diving with, um, with cuttlefish that are themselves the size of my hand and with octopuses and things. Um, so I've never been in the water with one that rivaled my own size. But they still do come up and try to work I've out been what told, your deal is. Yes, yeah. And so, you know, it makes sense to be careful, but there's no documented human deaths from squid. Uh, the only the only uh, cephalopods that have killed people are blue-ringed octopuses because they have this super, super potent venom. And they're very small and they don't want to kill you. They, they do not want you to bother them, but people are dumb sometimes and they pick them up. How do they... And how do they get the venom into you? Uh, it's in their salivary glands. So if you get bitten by a blue-ringed octopus, it injects the venom. 
and it's a, a neurotoxin that paralyzes and kills you how As how in, toxic is it yeah. is it like, like we're <laughs> guaranteed uh, death well, if you get uh not guaranteed I, you, you can be saved uh if you're saved fast enough i guess um and they live they don't live around here also so let me guess near australia somewhere? you got it <laughs> everything that can kill you lives in australia yeah australia is deadly um yes near australia and then also uh, around the tropical um pacific in that area and if you're swimming in that area you should be looking just don't touch a blue octopus or what is yeah it like? they have bright blue rings and they're actually like they're super they're color-coded they're like bright colors stay away and they'll flash their colors even more brightly if you, they're agitated. So if you don't see the blue rings, they're not agitated. And so they're probably not going to bite you. And oh, so they're, oh. you know, the closer you get to being bitten, the brighter the blue rings like are probably going to be. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That makes it, that is quite often the case, isn't it? In nature that the more venomous animals will have brighter markings. Yes. Yeah. A warning coloration. It's usually called. Yeah, like like usually, the really bright caterpillars. Don't eat those. All right. <laughs> so is that? When do I eat them? Jeez. Evolutionarily, does that make so? It's like they will kill you, but they'll probably get killed in the process anyway. Kind of. Is that the reason why they, they'd rather just not have you bother? Right. It's nobody actually knows why their venom is so potent. Like it does not need to be that potent. They're predators. Almost all octopuses are. Oh. Um, but I mean, they're again, they're catching little fish. Like they don't need enough venom to kill That's a grown up human, <laughs> but they've got it. Yeah. Damn. Um, just, so that, that probably must've been some kind of evolutionary competition that caused it at some to point. To ratchet up. Yeah, something something in their history there, or like just kind of run away. You know, as long as you're poisonous, you might as well be really, really poisonous. Right. I don't know. So those ones change their coloring to warn you, but then I've also seen those videos of those octopuses. So it's not octopi, by the way. People, or is it also octopi? Um, I have come to a point in my life <laughs> where I just say that you can pluralize it however you want. Okay. Uh, when I was younger, I would I would get really rabid about it, and I would tell people that octopi is wrong because oh. the word is not from Latin. Oh. Mm. What's it from? It is ancient Greek. So if you want to pluralize it like an ancient Greek word, you would pluralize it octopodes. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's yeah, a good that's party gonna... trick, isn't it? That yeah. one's not going to catch on. But it wasn't even, it was never actually used by ancient Greeks. Ancient Greeks called, the, called this animal polypus. Um, so the word octopus was actually coined by scientists in the Renaissance using ancient Greek um, roots. What is the... I know oct is eight. What is the puss part? Foot. Foot. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, and the root pod, P-O-D, is actually the root for foot. Um, but, I mean, I don't know how linguistically nerdy you want me to get. The sure, nominative yeah. singular in Greek adds a single S onto the end. So octopod, the root, would become octopods. But in ancient Greek, the linguistic convention is that if you have a D followed by an S, the D goes away and the vowel before the D changes. <laughs> so that's why, yeah. That's, so wait, that's uh, really useful so to know. <laughs> cephalopod, what does that mean again? Cephalopod means head foot. Head foot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very good visual. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but if you think about their arms or their tentacles as feet, they're growing right off of the animal's head. Right. So they're organized. Uh, their head is in the middle of their body with the eyes and the brain and everything. And off, off one end of their head comes all the arms. And off the other end comes the blob of their body, which is called a mantle. It has all the other organs and things. It makes sense. And I forgot what I derailed you from when I asked about octopi. You were saying. Who knows? Um, was it? Oh, the, the camouflage. I was going to say, yes. I've seen videos of those amazing octopuses that you can't even <laughs> nice, see nice. in the video and then suddenly can. Is that uh, what? 
is that unique to, to a certain species of octopus or do a lot of those have that? Or? No, the amazing camouflage is an is a cephalopod trait overall. It doesn't mean every species has it, but most octopuses, squid and cuttlefish mm-hmm. can change their skin color uh, to match their surroundings or to give warnings or to flirt with each other um, or to fight with each other. They can do a lot of things with it. But they definitely do know what they're what their surroundings look like. Because I've heard some species that we think of as camouflage don't really camouflage. Like some lizards don't actually like, um, some that change colors don't actually do it to blend or don't know that they're, do you know what I'm asking? They, they yeah, like are aware is there a brain involved or is it just sort of a reflex that their skin does? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's still an open question too because cephalopod eyes, as far as we know, can't see color. So that's weird, right? Uh, But they're clearly, to our eyes, they seem to be clearly matching color. So that's still still under consideration, what's going on there. Yeah, those videos are amazing. Those ones where you just... Totally mind-blowing. So they're in black, they're viewing the world in black and white. And... But somehow escaping color vision predators. Right, right. And they get, they have actually another channel that we don't have. Many of them can see polarized light, which is what you're seeing or not seeing when you wear sunglasses to block glare. Um, that really is interesting. So mm-hmm. they have so one of their lenses has sort of a, effectively a polarized filter. So it'll be letting through light or not, depending which way it's angled. Depending on which way the the light is organized. Yeah, I'm actually I'm not super clear on the um like the physical structure of their eyes, how that works. Mm-hmm. But it could be a lens. Yeah, thing. It, I'm not oh, sure. it could be a lens, or I guess it could be reflective because one of the reasons people wear polarized lenses to drive is that glare off of the road or glare off right. Of the a reflector's or when they're sailing like glare yeah, off a reflector yeah. surface is polarized exactly yeah so it might be some kind of reflection inside the eye as well yeah to receive that yeah are, are those sure. species also ones that live closer to the surface yeah they yeah to... they i mean the super deep sea ones yeah they're not perceiving polarized light yeah, for sure i would have thought they're barely perceiving any light yeah. Well, the weird thing about the deep sea is that there's almost everything is bioluminescent. So it's actually really useful to be able to see, not because there's any ambient light, but because most of the animals are producing light. Most predators or all animals? Um, no, all of them. Like even little plankton have the ability to bioluminesce. And that's thought to be that like if they do it in mass, it can confuse a predator. Um but also there's pre- so many ideas presumably to find other members of the same species to find mates yeah and uh and then also to like to attract or lure prey there's an anglerfish like uh, like the anglerfish in finding nemo right, right. that has the glowing lure to attract prey um and then and but then also potentially scare predators away if you make a really big sudden flash that could be alarming mm-hmm. uh, so so everything um not it's it's the rule. Like it's more often than not, if you find something in the deep sea, that it'll have it'll, bioluminescence. It'll light up on its own. It's yeah, um, but the the polarized stuff is is more shallow water uh, because it's it's sunlight that's polarized as it goes through the water. Mm-hmm. And um and there's even a thought that uh, one particular species of cuttlefish, which has been studied, can uh, send a signal by producing polarized light in its skin. Two wow. other cuttlefish, which can see polarized light, which is like a hidden channel because their fish predators can't see it. Oh, so interesting. So it's like having your own private right. radio channel. Because they can just, they'll see, they'll see light because if you have non-polarized lenses, you still see it as light. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to see that that, that it's polarized. That all the light waves way. are angled in yeah. the same direction. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's okay. So we got, we got away from the book a bit. So you start off. 
<laughs> start happens. off way in the past. Yeah, yeah, way. Uh, it basically, the book is sort of like the whole history of life from a squid's eye view. Right. So, which was my excuse to learn the whole history of life because I had I had never been a paleontologist, so it was my excuse to learn about uh, you know everything going back to the beginning and just always having a squid in mind. How is this relevant to squid? I like that as a sort of like, you know, a little bystander to history. Exactly. <laughs> and interferer of history as well. Oh, yes. And creator of. Yeah. Are we like how far back do humans and squids have to go to have a common ancestor? Um, that is all the way back to pretty much the <sighs> pre-Cambrian. So Cambrian is 500 million years ago. And by then you already have the distinction between... Um, mollusks which is all the snails and cephalopods and those sort of shelly soft squishy things and what are going to become vertebrates like us with backbones they don't have the backbone yet but their ancestor is already separated so you'd have to go back 50 100 million more years to get back to that common ancestor what was the approximate time frame when the first animal of any kind left water um, b- 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 I mean, that's the land. Who cares about the land? Like, well, I don't know why you're asking <laughs> no, me just, this. I, I only learned recently on the podcast. I didn't realize that, and maybe verify if this is true. Are all marine mammals were they all on land at, yes. at some point and then came back and to then the came ocean? back to I the didn't ocean? Know that Isn't recently. that yeah. so weird? Yeah. That. So that happened after the big Cretaceous extinction, which mm-hmm. was the end dinosaur uh, asteroid smashy thing. Um, so. The the things going on land that it was it was before the great dying. I okay. know that because you already have insects on land and uh, and little things like that. But I don't what was the time frame again for the great dying? And the great dying was uh, two hundred ninety six million years ago. And the so dinosaur extinction was uh, was sixty. Hmm, 60 some million years okay. ago. I've just, I've, I've <laughs> learned these at some point, but they never stick like no periods because there are such like just they're giant periods and they're ones that are orders of magnitude smaller within those. Like, I know. Like, and I, I can know. never keep them all straight. Well, I was so, writing like, the book. I had, I had to write them all, like all the dates and all the names. And I just had them next to my computer for a year and a half. <laughs> and is there any like mnemonic device so you could at parties at least know what the right. Mm, probably. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't come up with one. Are there just, for the ones that are the longest periods, are there just a handful of those? Like the ones that are like... Yeah, you know, the really hundreds. biggest ones. So you've got, um, in terms of modern times, when uh, since life evolved, you have the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic. Zoic is the same root as zoo. That means animals. Paleo is old. Meso is middle. Ceno is okay. modern. Um, so the Paleozoic is your time after the Cambrian explosion. So you've got cephalopods already. You've got worms. You've got all this stuff. And that goes, the Paleozoic, then goes all the way from that origin of lots of animals to the great dying the end permian massive volcanoes everybody 296 million i think so yeah yeah that sounds right what what andy's basically asking is is there a way so that if it comes up in a trivia night (laughs) how can i win at trivia that is a hundred percent what andy has in his mind (laughs) because there's every chance that it'll come up at some point and you just need to know which ones might even have you guys started playing i shouldn't plug someone else's thing but why not uh hq trivia oh and i, I think riley friend of the show riley yeah, newton sent a, me a thing a about live trivia game show twice a day it's an app based thing with cash twice prizes like the sunday ones are five thousand dollars and they'll start with seventy thousand people and you have to get all the questions right and by the 15th question they've but if you're on like if you're on the phone people. is it it's so fast you... you couldn't really google it i mean if you got a group ah. together in a room maybe 
and uh, there's a way you could probably game it, but like alone, you wouldn't have time. It's just, it's so fast. And it's just, it's always three multiple choice answers, but by the end, they've whittled down this huge group to just a few that win actual money. So I shouldn't plug it because now it's going to be more competition if our listeners go on there, but I'm on there most days trying to, and it's always a sports question in the middle that knocks you out. But, oh, yeah. But now if it's Paleozoic, Mesozoic, or Cenozoic. Yeah. yeah. And then your, your Mesozoic or Mesozoic is all dinosaurs all the time. That's uh, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. That's, that's like what most people think of when they think of prehistoric life. But dinosaur. that's actually middle historic. Exactly. Yeah, isn't that weird? That's that's just the middle. That's sorry. What, what were the? Uh, I already forgot. Jurassic's in the middle. And what are the other two? Triassic, Triassic. is the first one, and Cretaceous. Yeah. Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. Okay. Yeah. Enough for my <laughs> trivia preparation. Thank you. Now Not let's do cloud service. types. Yeah. Oh God, that's come up so many times at trivia. We always fuck it up. Yeah. Clouds. Or I'm not. I'm sorry. Not cloud types. Um, layers of the atmosphere has come up oh. a bunch of times. Oh, I thought cloud. No cloud types were like cumulonimbus, nimbostratus, cirrus. Yeah, yeah. No, the ionosphere, yeah, stratosphere, nothing. troposphere. I can never keep. And those. then champagne bottle sizes. You can't be. You can't be a good quizzer without. <laughs> that's come up on this podcast alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the biggest one? Uh, I don't know if it's the biggest, but Methuselah is up there. Is like the body sized one. There's Jeroboam. Yeah. This actually sounds like a subject ripe for some sort of like statistical analysis like, like how many times yeah. these questions come up mm-hmm. there oh, are some definite yeah. go-tos we uh oh you mean like i'm sorry how many times we've discussed something in the podcast or how many times a question comes up at trivia well actually now both of those and yeah. you could you could run a regression and see like if there's some relationship over time and there's definitely a lot there of- are things you should study like if you really like um my i've a good friend back home who's a comedian but also a professional quizzer Oh, really? Yeah, well, his name's Paul Sinha, and he's a very funny comedian, but he also got really into competitive quizzing, and now he's one of the quizzers on a game show called The Chase, where members of the public compete against a pro quizzer. It's actually a really good game show. Uh, It's a daytime quiz show. I didn't realize that quizzer was a job. Yeah, Yeah. but he will, and his, you know, fellow pro competitive quizzers, they they study, you know, they'll study like exams. They'll be like, all right, today I'm revising all the American presidents, or all the kings of europe uh, all the best picture winners for that's one of the yeah, only ones that's that when I, you should already know i mean that's like yeah. that <laughs> i used to know at least that's like, like middle school quizzing that, but yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah uh, it's kind of like crossword puzzles also like you only have to play those for a few weeks before you start to see a lot of the same words oh that's probably even more there's more, even more commonalities to crossword puzzles than game shows i would guess but like Eli will come up all with like a Yale grad. They need a three letter word. Eli is all over crosswords. You guys are just glossing over. It's like I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> Why let's e- get back to penile, penile fencing. <laughs> yeah, let's get back to the squids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got we got way we got way off track. It happens. Yeah, we did. It's all good. All right, so so you start you, you start off you start off way in prehistory. You work your way to the present day. But all through a squid's eye view. All through the squid's eye view, yes. And yeah, and then I spend a little bit of time talking about where we are today. The just the sheer diversity of weird cephalopods, from blue ringed octopuses to giant squid to vampire squid to what's a vampire squid? Of course, you have to know <laughs> what a vampire squid is. Um, vampire squid. The the full scientific name is Vampirotuthis infernalis, which actually means vampire squid from hell. Okay, <laughs> they're the best cephalopod, and they. Um, they are dark, dark red bodies, live in the deep, deep sea, and their eyes um, 
can look depending on the lighting just pure blue with no pupil at all they're just unbelievably creepy animals and they have they have a, they look a, a more like an octopus than a squid. They have eight arms and a, and webs between them, and they can turn the web inside out to wrap them. Like they kind of turn themselves inside out, so it looks a little bit like a, a vampire, like whoosh, in the, yeah, in the cave. Um, it's super super creepy. And until recently, nobody even knew what they ate, so you could even kind of imagine that maybe sure. they were vampires. Um, <laughs> But so just, we, we don't know for sure, but we imagine virgins. It <laughs> like, seems very likely. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, you, know, that's, you throw them into the water. Um, but uh, in fact, just a few years ago, scientists got enough uh, video footage of them underwater and as well as studying them, actually being able to keep them for a little while in the lab and study them. And what they do is they just, they just catch falling poop and snot. From the surface. Yep. Delicious. Boring Twilight sequel. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's a great euphemistic name for the marine biologists call it marine snow. (laughs) (laughs) Marine snow is made up of uh, poop and snot and dead bodies, also. Uh, mostly very small, de- small so like dead, dead plankton yeah. snot is the surprising one in that mix. So that's Yeah. Well a lot of marine animals make a lot of snot. Go on. <laughs> you want to know more. So um, so there are a lot of little animals that live in the plankton um, that spin web. You can kind of think of them as spinning webs like a spider made out of snot. And then they use that to catch their food. And then when they're done with it, they just drop it. And it slowly sinks through the... It snows down. Yeah. It snows. It snows. Yeah. it snows. yeah. You could make a little snowman out of it. I'm sure it would stick together really nicely. Oh, God. <laughs> and then these, these vampires of the sea. Yeah. And then they, they're not the only type of animal that does this, but they're detritus fever, feeders, basically. They, they have these uh, two long filaments that are like super derived. They used to be tentacles, but now they're just these really thin, long, sticky filaments. And they just sort of like go fishing for marine snow and, and then they, they just draw like, them exactly they lick it off yeah that was a really nice finger. visual too i, I was back. licking my entire arm all the all the marine poo off my arm it's delicious <laughs> so vampire squid are, are really really lovely okay. i think they're perfect what about the giant squid because i thought those were like maybe just creatures of lore that might not even exist or something or is... there really is an animal called the giant squid okay. and another one called the colossal squid um but they don't reach over fishing boats. They don't, in fact, sink fishing boats. Never? You're sure it's never happened? It has never, ever happened. Oh. I feel really confident saying that. <laughs> uh, they live quite deep. If you ever see one near the surface, especially um, like near the shore, it is not a well animal. It's probably dying or dead or has already been eaten by a sperm whale and vomited back up. Oh. Like and maybe is still a little bit alive, you're mm, saying? Or? Could be wiggling a little oh. bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, or not. Sometimes they're just carcasses. Yeah. Uh, but they, they do get quite large. Not as large as those, um, those gigantic uh, prehistoric ones. Mm-hmm. But they get um, like just their body, just the sort of sack that has organs in it, could be up to eight feet long. So, like, you could climb inside of that, and it would smell really bad, but you could do it. Yeah. yeah. And then they also have the head and tentacles. Just just for accuracy as well, because I double-checked, like, an average bus is a bit longer than that. We're talking, like, double the length. But, you know, of, a, a mini yeah. bus or a small bus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's still... That still can get up. I just want to believe there's a possibility. Oh, sorry, six meters, twenty feet. There's been some ship that's been completely enveloped by a squid, but that's that's, that's never happened. Yeah, in fiction. Sure. (sighs) Okay, fiction. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you've seen in your career that before you'd seen it, you thought didn't exist? 
You know what I mean? Like, were there any things that you were, that the community was like, this is just something people think is out there, and then an example was found? Because I thought I'd heard stories in the last decade of some record-breaking squid being found, but I mean... That was not... probably colossal squid, uh-huh. would be my guess, because they are they get as big as giant squid, and they do seem to get heavier. Mm-hmm. And there's some thought, because... We haven't found very many, so I mean, what are the odds that we've found literally the biggest one? Right, right. right. So it's always fun to speculate. What would the biggest one look like? Um, oh, right, because yeah, it's pretty. If you only have a couple of samples, it's fair to assume that they're somewhere around the median. It's more likely, yeah, than that they're going to be the very smallest or the very biggest one. So, short okay. answer: No, nothing that's blown you away and had made you well, change your beliefs about. <laughs> no, I don't think. Not that I have seen, but. Um, there's there's certainly been been stories like while I have been in science that I've been hearing like oh people discovered um like uh like a new I mean this is sort of random but like a new mammal like, I didn't I thought that we knew all of the mammals on the planet that seemed pretty basic but there was there oh, was some new like, species of mammal I discovered about that. I mean there's tons of insects being discovered all the time yeah but mammal all... I thought the mammals were all known but there's new ones being found all the time and um yeah, it's. I guess it's just. It's mostly just realizing that there's still a lot more out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. What proportion of squid use ink as a means of protection? Um, most of the ones, I, I'd say, probably the only ones that don't are going to be really deep sea ones. And even some of the deep sea ones, there's weird footage of deep sea squids filling their own bodies with ink. They have transparent bodies, which is weird already. And then um, and then you'll see pictures of them releasing ink into that body cavity. And nobody has, as far as I know, nobody has any idea why they're doing that. If they're just like, oh, I wonder what it would feel like to be full of ink. And then... It's like a cephalopod but, tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. yeah who even knows? Um, or maybe there's some adaptive value, like it repels predators or... Um, so most of them do have ink. And uh, and they can use it in a couple of different ways. They can make a smoke screen just by releasing a little bit of ink and that mixes with water, and it just makes it hard to see because it probably irritates the eyes of predators. Um, although it's also got some compounds in it that are delicious, so it could be both an eye irritant and a, a gustatory distractant, I suppose. As in, like the as in the the predator is like, oh, I'm going to eat this water over here while the squid is disappearing off to the other side. That's very nice, sort of thing. Yeah, and but the other thing that squid can do is they can mix a little bit more concentrated amount of ink with mucus. Again, with the mucus theme, there's a lot of good mucus stuff in the ocean, and make something called a pseudomorph, which is like it's a means fake shape, so it's like a fake squid made out of ink. And then they jet off the other way. That's so it's like a full-on decoy. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Only it doesn't move. I mean, that would be really cool, but... It's like those cartoons where someone moves so quickly, there's like a dust out- a yes! cloud outline of yeah. their body behind them. Or even like, that's a thing that planes certainly used to and maybe still do deploy to Cast trick missiles. Kind of... Like yeah. they're sort of strafed out the back with like the metal strips that would... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's but remarkable. good style. Yeah. So I know people can't go see squids in captivity for the most part, but where do you recommend listeners go if they're like, I want to get my cephalopod fix on? If you can get to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, they currently have an exhibit called Tentacles, which is 
all cephalopods all the time. It's my personal heaven. It's got <laughs> octopuses, cuttlefish. They do have these squid species that I was mentioning that are easier. So they have those pygmy squid and they have some of the reef squid. And they have, when they can get them, they even have deep sea animals on display because the Monterey Bay Aquarium works with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, which has all these amazing deep diving submersibles. So they've even had vampire squid on display. Oh, damn. Um, so have you seen them? Yeah. So those ones aren't as susceptible to the problems in captivity that other squid have? Yeah, that's right, because they don't move as much, because they're just these kind of hanging poop eaters. Right. <laughs> they right. don't bump into the walls. And they're actually much smaller than I expected. I feel like when you see um, video of them on Discovery Channel or wherever, there's never a scale bar. There's never like a pencil in the frame. Right, so, right, that you see right. so you're like, oh my God, it's a vampire squid. It's going to eat me. Um, and they're like kitten size. They're, oh, they're pretty little. But by the... Uh, ble- uh, super bright blue eyes and, and red. dark red skin. Uh, okay. Yeah. Again, I wish um, our listeners could see how much your eyes lit up when I asked <laughs> if you'd seen them in person. <laughs> They're really cool. <laughs> so the love affair has never abated since ten years old. With the no, octopus. this is this is it. Yeah, it just comes out in a new form. I mean, I'd say you know by the time you've done a PhD and then still come out and gone like I'm going to write and publish an entire book. <laughs> Yeah, and and now I, you know I work on um, cephalopod inspired fiction as well. So it's just what it's a bottomless well entail? of uh, well. I mean, how Cthulhu are we getting? Uh, I actually am not a horror fan, so right. I tend to go away from the Lovecraftian direction towards right. more of a like utopia of squid in the future. <laughs> Um, I've, I've, I've one novel that um, that is not yet published. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to tell you about it soon. Well, I can tell you a little bit about it now. It's um, it's for younger readers, and uh, it's about a future in which people have trained squid to race, and people ride on them. So instead of going to the horse races, you can go to the squid oh, races. I like that. I like that. Um, and there's there's it's a story of a girl and her squid. You know, like mm-hmm. like a boy and his dog, or a girl yeah. and her horse. But um, she she trains her squid, and they race together. Do you have they any rival, are there any rivalries in the cephalopod community with other marine like we had we had a marine bio, a former marine biologist turned comedian who uh, specialized in manatees. Do oh you guys have any like clash with like sea mammal people or do you guys all get along? I think that mostly like it's a pretty happy family. Um there's always a little bit of grumbling about the, the uh, what we call charismatic megafauna which means a megafauna are big animals and and they're just everybody you say that you're a marine biologist and everyone's like oh dolphins i love dolphins right and you're like no mucus snot (laughs) but worms weird weird red cloaky things yeah 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 but um, but now i can tell people that the the animals that i am most interested in squid and cephalopods are critical to the existence of charismatic megafauna because almost every marine mammal is a squid eater like just that's it like all dolphins all seals um all of the whales that have teeth uh, your baleen whales that are filtering tiny things are not eating well they might be eating tiny squid because they'll eat anything that's tiny Mm. um but uh but yeah that squid are a huge part of the diet of seals and dolphins and whales so you don't get your cute you don't get flipper without um that's right isn't even a flipper of squids to name i couldn't even think of like there's no not yet until your book is published that's right (laughs) And Do you have any names? Do you have any squid names yet? Oh, can tease or... any recommendations? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we should we should put it to the listeners yeah. and have have them. 
Well, what is, do you have a Twitter handle that they can tweet you at? Oh, as? please do. Yes, Dana Staff. Not okay. very creative. D-A-N-N-A-S-T-A-A-F. We, we'll, we'll link on that as well. Uh, we'll link to that as well on both on the website and in the show notes. But, and yeah. we'll link to um, a, li- a link on Amazon um, to buy the book. You can go Please over to probablyscience.com and click on that. And yeah, if you go through our little link there, then, you know, helps us out as well. We, yeah, yeah. It's a win-win. It's uh, a symbiosis. Yes. <laughs> it is. Well, do, you, do you have a favorite squid? Or is it is it bad form to play favorites? I have maybe two favorite squid. I'll allow um, it. I do really, really love those pygmy squid. Um, their glue glands that they use to glue onto the underside of seaweed and just hang out are like... Um, it's still not totally understood how they do that, but it's thought that they might be a two-part epoxy style thing where they have one thing that glues and then another thing that they mix to release when they need to let go. And so they're just like little tiny squid engineers. And I love that. How how small? Um, And they're they're teeny, teeny, tiny. Even the grown-ups are maybe like just uh, like fingernail-sized. Oh, okay. That's smaller than I was Very, uh, very little. Are chemists studying the glue mechanism to yeah. try and yeah i know that's something that quite often happens where they'll they'll go to the natural world to be like how does this thing stand upside down or whatever and exactly. what is can material scientists recreate this yeah so yeah there's actually a lot of cool stuff in squid for material science there's there's the glue that pygmy squid have there's um there's the material in their beaks that goes from so their mouths are these sharp beaks and the tips are very hard and sharp but it goes it has this perfectly gradual transition from the hard sharp tip to this very soft and squishy base which connects to the muscle of the animal and that transition has been studied for things like um, building better prosthetics to blend more seamlessly with the human body oh nice i know and then um oh there's just there's all kinds of stuff yeah like squid are good for chemistry we didn't really talk about the beaks either what are they what are those usually used for uh eating it's eating. always yes. okay yeah they but eat just like but i mean <laughs> it's just a single point right like they, there's no chewing involved or... yes no, that's a good point they have um they have a beak that looks very much like a bird's beak and yet yeah, they don't have teeth for chewing so they have to take fairly small bites um they have uh tongue-like thing called a radula that's sort of like a conveyor belt that pulls their bites back down their throat and then their throat their esophagus goes right through the middle of their brain which is shaped like a donut so they have to take pretty small bites to so they don't get it doesn't get blocked by the brain yeah yeah so they don't get brain freeze not exactly brain freeze yeah took a big bite and then and then your second favorite uh right so then the other one um the other one would probably have to be the Humboldt squid that I studied. That's they're just, fair enough. They're really cool. And they're really, they're, they just make these adorable babies. That's right, your OG. Yeah. And they get, they get really big. If uh, listeners cool. go look at your Twitter feed, can they find any pictures of these babies from back in the day? I or? might be able to put some up there. <laughs> no, not you yeah. have to, but I said it. But. Yeah. I think I have some on my blog. I blog at uh, cephalopodiatrist dot com okay. um, because it's so easy to pronounce. Right. I yeah. That yeah. Was, I mean, that like, was a good yeah. spelled the usual way. <laughs> yeah. Just like you would. Um, we'll link to that. You say the the book is subtitled "The Rise and Fall of the Cephalopods," but they haven't fallen that far. There's, it's true. There. It's true. I think that a more accurate subtitle would have been "The Rise and Fall and Renaissance of the Cephalopods." Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because they they did. They, we saw that they almost bit it at a couple of big mass Those extinctions, f- and they have been kind of playing second fiddle to squid, to, to fish, and marine mammals. Um, but they're they're doing okay for themselves. 
And the last part of the book is about how they seem to be doing even more okay for themselves in the Anthropocene, the the name for this time period when humans are changing the world so rapidly. Squid and octopuses seem to be largely winners in that equation. That's like us right now, what we're currently yeah. doing, what humans change, are currently doing to yeah. the environments around. Yeah. So everything we're doing is probably favoring the rise of the the re-rise For of the, the squid. For the most part, yeah, they Wait, seem to be you, doing well. Are you a spy? Are you are you anti-human and pro-human? <laughs> yeah, keep doing what you're doing. It's working. <laughs> well, I say almost pro-human. Like just keep. Yeah, we're doing. We'll be gone, fine. but the cephalopods the, will be fine the rare biologists who are so like, no, global warming's not all bad. Yeah, yeah, sea level rise, more seas, more sounds sea fine. Humboldt I mean, squid can creep further north. I see Los Angeles slipping into the ocean, squid oozing up Ventura Boulevard. Right. Like, I don't see a loser in this scenario. <laughs> How do I capitalize? Can I invest in squids? Right? In squid right now? Is there a squid? I gotta futures? tell you, so, yeah, <laughs> sell whales by squid. Yeah. Uh, and squid plural is squid. I keep saying squids, but you don't. You can squid. you can use both. Okay, it's okay. okay. Again, uh, a lot of people use squid for the plural when it's all the same species. So twenty million Humboldt squid, and then squids for the plural if you're talking about all of the different species of squids, like people and peoples. Yes. Wouldn't you only use peoples to talk about groups? Of yeah, many people, groups of peoples. Many Absolutely. peoples came yeah. together as opposed to hundred people came exactly together. exactly came like together. that. Yeah. Maybe you would. I don't know. Is that how people's works? That is exactly how okay. people's work. <laughs> you should know that from when we studied uh, plurals for right. trivia. <laughs> I do love, yeah, do you have any good uh, collective nouns for any of the, you know, like there's like murder of crows, oh, pride yeah. of lions. Are there, uh, any good? There, was, there was actually a lengthy discussion on a blog post once about the plural of squid. And I think that squid squad won squad out. Of squid. A squad of squad. squad. Of yeah, yeah. squid squad. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Well, you can learn all about squid squad and other things that almost <laughs> rhyme uh, if you check out Squid Empire by our wonderful guest, Dr. Dana Staff. Yeah, Squid Empire, the rise and fall of the cephalopods. And we will link to both Dana's social media and to where you can buy this book and find out more and the blog and all sorts. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was super fun. I don't think, I don't think, I think we've barely done any squid stories on this show it's before. Been, and this has been... this in our squid coverage. We'll yeah. rectify that after this. Absolutely. I'm going to be actively seeking out squid <laughs> stories, but we're going to start with this book. You should too. Listeners, check it out. Thank you so much for joining us, Dana. Thank you very much. <laughs>